Well, let's take our Bibles tonight, turn together to that passage we read a moment ago, Acts chapter 9, and this section beginning at verse 32. Jesus Christ makes all things new. That's the specific implication which Luke draws from the resurrection of the dead. The fact of the resurrection drives the story of the new creation, this new thing that has been inaugurated by Christ and is being confirmed in the lifetime of these early Christians by the apostles. In this chapter, at the beginning of the chapter, we've been introduced to Saul who will become Paul the great apostle. He's been introduced to us and now the action flows from Paul or Saul as he was to Peter, going back and forth, Peter who is the leader of the twelve. And this movement back and forth between Saul and Peter and then back to Paul uh, helps to underline the inherent unity and harmony that existed in the early Christian movement. Saul on the road to Damascus has been converted. After some time there he's gone to Jerusalem where he's been accepted wholeheartedly by the twelve as an apostle, an eyewitness of the risen Jesus. Verse 27 tells us that he had seen the Lord, that is, he'd seen him physically alive after his passion, and then he had gone boldly, the text says, in the name of Jesus, to preach Jesus to the world. Now the action moves back from Paul to the twelve, and specifically to Peter. And in these verses we read, the key thought that is repeated throughout the passage is captured in the idea of raising up, that is to raise up. You can see it in the repetition of the command to rise, given to Aeneas and to Tabitha or Dorcas, and the fact that both of these people, one who is paralyzed and one who is deceased, are raised by the power of Jesus through Peter. So will you follow with me as we see the risen Lord Jesus through Peter raising the paralyzed and raising the deceased. First of all, the power of the risen Jesus through Peter raising the paralyzed. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, that is among all the people, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. Here we have Peter on the move. I'm not sure whether Peter enjoyed moving as much, moving around as much as the Apostle Paul was going to do. He had traveled during his time with the Lord Jesus for those three years or so in which Jesus was going in and around Galilee and Palestine. Uh, Peter had gone with him, having left his home and followed the Master. But since the resurrection of Jesus and the exaltation of Jesus, he and the others among the twelve had remained pretty well rooted in Jerusalem. They'd stayed there even after the persecution had scattered the believers all over Judea and Samaria. They had stayed pretty rooted in the city of Jerusalem. Only after Philip had gone down to Samaria without due authorization, it has to be said, and started to preach there and seen a real turning to God there in, uh, Syria, in Samaria, had Peter and John then gone down following that to verify what was going on and to see whether in fact 
this was, and then, then acknowledging that this was, and authorizing that this was, by the power of the Holy Spirit, a work of God among the Samaritan people. And it must have made Peter thrilled to see how God was converting Samaritans to Jesus Christ. That must have stirred his heart and broadened his imagination. I wonder whether Peter came back from Samaria wondering where would this expansion of Christianity end? Perhaps that's why he decided to take leave of absence from Jerusalem and visit Christian groups that had been scattered by the persecution. That's what he's doing when Peter goes walkabout. And it's perhaps helpful for us just to remember that Peter is a traveler and a missionary just as much as Paul is. Paul is the one we remember because of his prodigious travels. But Peter also travels for the sake of the gospel. In fact, he is the first officially to go into Gentile territory outside of Israel with the gospel. And that's going to be crucial for the future because what these verses we're reading tonight are in fact uh, are a series of introductory points leading us to the events of chapter 10 which are absolutely pivotal. You and I are Christians today, most of us here in this room who are Gentiles, are Christians today because of this momentous event in chapter 10 which is heralded by these two momentous miracles that we have in this introduction here because really what we are following here beginning in verse 32 is Peter's movement out of Jerusalem down towards the coast towards this great meeting he's going to have with Cornelius this this Roman centurion we're not going to get that far tonight but we need to bear in mind that we're reading the introduction to that great event it's on the way then that he heals the paralytic and the dead widow he raises to life. As we read the story, we see Peter validated as an authentic representative of the line of apostles and prophets that God has used throughout history. Uh, the, the two miracles here parallel miracles that you'll read about, both in the life of Jesus and in the life of those two super prophets of the Old Testament who performed miracles, Elijah and Elisha. So when we find Peter doing the same as Jesus, and we find Peter doing the same as Elijah and Elisha, we're seeing that Peter is to be ranked alongside not only Jesus, the Messiah, but also these great prophets who worked signs and wonders among the people. And what he's doing by performing these signs and wonders is underlining what Luke has announced at the very beginning of this letter that the risen and exalted Jesus is still at work through the ministry of the apostles. Now these two miracles are a pair. They embrace a man and a woman, I think, intentionally in order to show us that the work of Christ and this promised new creation that, that has started in Christ is for men and women equally. So let's follow his journey as he travels down from Jerusalem going westwards towards the Mediterranean Sea and he reaches this little town of Lydda, a town that today is called Lod and is the site of the modern Tel Aviv airport. And he meets with the saints there. We're used to that word. If you've read the epistles of Paul, you're used to reading that word at the beginning of his letters. He writes his letters to the saints in Corinth or the saints in 
Philippi or the saints in Timbuktu. I haven't discovered that letter yet, but it's, it's, it's certain that that's who it would be addressed to, the saints. But this is not one of the designations we find very often in the book of Acts. You find that in Acts, the Christians are more likely to be called disciples, used over 30 times. Occasionally, I think, twice called Christians. Uh, at other times called the people who are the followers of the way, Jesus being the way of life, of course. But the word saint is used only four times in Acts. It's first used in chapter 9, verse 13, when Ananias is arguing with God about the conversion of Saul, and, and he's saying to the Lord, Lord, I've heard the reports of this man. I, I hear what he's doing. I hear what he's doing to your saints at Jerusalem destroying them, and he has authority to bind them all and, and to, to bind all those who call on your name. So these saints are holy ones who call on the name of the Lord. That's the definition we've been given. I didn't spend any time on that when we passed it by in our earlier exposition so that I could save it up for you tonight. So let me pick it up from verse 13 and say, who are these saints? Well, they're those who are God's holy ones and they are those who call on the name of the Lord. First time we come across that second expression is way back, way back in Genesis, just after the story of Eden and the fall, when humanity is being dispersed, and we read as corruption increases, so in those days of corruption increasing with murder and violence increasing, along with cultural growth in the world, the thing that distinguishes the godly from the ungodly is this. The godly are those who call upon the name of the Lord. That seems to me to be the beginning of public worship in the Bible where people are gathered together and they corporately call on the name of the Lord. They acknowledge Him to be the Lord. He is the maker of everything. He is their Savior, their maker. They call on His name. They pray to Him. They give their praises to Him. They listen to his voice. They call on his name in worship. Paul, for example, uses the same expression writing to the Corinthians when he says that the Corinthians are those who with everybody everywhere calls on the name of the Lord. They're those who call on the name of the Lord, thus placing them alongside these holy men and women of God in the past. And they're called the, the holy ones, those set apart for those distinguished from the world, so that they are distinguished as belonging to God. He has put his ring fence around them. He has said that out of all of humanity, these are mine, these belong to me, these are my people. He's called them to himself. He's chosen them out of the world. He's drawn them by his grace. He's revealed his son in them. He has given them the gift of faith. He has adopted them into His family. He has given them His Holy Spirit as a down payment of the inheritance that He will give them finally on the last day. These, says He, are Mine. Then on each He setteth His own secret sign. Those that have My Spirit, these, saith He, are Mine, as the old children's hymn puts it. And they're to distinguish themselves in the world by their separation, as, as Israel was, for example. Israel is the original saint, saintly people, holy people. They were to be distinguished from the world by their separation from other nations, by their consecration to God and to God's service, and by their obedience to God's 
commands. Under the new covenant, saints are those who have been sanctified, set apart, distinguished by their belonging to Christ Jesus and inheriting his eternal kingdom. Now, I think it's important just to pause here for a moment and to remember as we read these words that God's people are God's saints. That is, they belong to God. That's the primary meaning of this word. I want you to remember that whenever you're inclined to critique the people of God, whenever you are tempted to rubbish its people, whenever you suppose it trendy to dismiss their traditions or mock their idiosyncrasies, we need to remember that the church constitutes the people of God. That is, they are God's saints. They belong to God. They are His people. It is an affront to His majesty to attack them, to belittle them, to dismiss them, to malign them, to abuse them. They are His saints. They will inherit the earth. They will come into that promised future. One day there, they will be as glorious. They will be glorious and enjoy the immediate presence of the Lord they love and the Lord they serve. One day, all their enemies will be put under their feet. One day, the church of Jesus Christ, which is today like an army with banners, they will be welcomed into His glorious presence. The church comprises the saints of God. And if you are a believer, there's only one proper attitude to have towards the church, and that is that of genuine affection and loyal love. Peter wants to visit the saints. And as he visits the saints, he finds this one man paralyzed. And that's an interesting thing, isn't it? You would expect, would you not, that there would be nobody sick among the saints of God. Now the last days have dawned, as this book has been telling us over and over again, now the last days have dawned, surely there could be no one sick among the people of God. That certainly is the implication of some teaching, isn't it? There are those folk who, with the best will in the world, feel that healing is part of the gospel message, and therefore there is something wrong if a believer is sick. It's their faith that's wrong. It's their Christian life that's wrong. It's their experience that's wrong. There's nothing said about the subjective state of this man, Aeneas, who was paralyzed. He seems to be being numbered among the saints. And there is no expression of surprise on the part of Peter at finding a sick man in the church. There's no rebuke for lack of faith. There's no lecture on the need to enter into fullness of life. There's no suggestion of this man being a second-tier believer. All we're told is that Aeneas was paralyzed. We're not told very much about Aeneas. There's no record of his good works. The man's been immobile for years, unable to do any good works. And yet it's desperately sad to read the story. Here is a grown man, so permanently, helplessly, disabled, without strength, to make his own bed or make his own food. The, the, the Greek can be read either way. It's either making his bed or making his own meals. He can do neither of those things. And so here is Peter. What does Peter do? He acts independently of the man's response. He takes the initiative. 
He sends people out the room. He makes a declaration and he gives a command. He says, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. That's it. Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed or rise and make your dinner. One or the other. You can take your pick. He had earlier argued, Peter that is, had earlier argued that it was not due to any superior power or piety in him that he was able to do these miracles. Such miracles were entirely due to the work of the one in whose name he acted. That was all there was to it. And little other information is given except we're told this, the focus of the story is this, that, uh, that immediately, immediately, immediately Aeneas rose. He rose. The same language is used of the resurrection. The same language that is used of the risen Lord Jesus. Immediately. It is an instantaneous healing. The man is told, as I say, either to collect up his bedding or get himself a meal. It is a miracle. As Chuck Swindoll said, this, this is real power at work here. Some of us for years have been saying to our children, arise and make your bed, and it hasn't worked. And here in this instance, Peter works a miracle. Arise and make your bed, and he does. Well, it was a real miracle. It was a great miracle. It stands alongside the healing of the paralytic that Jesus healed by the pool of Bethesda, to whom he said, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And these healings, as we've been noticing, distinguish in the New Testament the apostles. They're regularly described in those terms. In Corinthians and Hebrews, they are the works, the marks of an apostle. Earlier in Acts, we're told that the apostles did these signs and wonders. These were the marks of an apostle. Now, we are not apostles, but we are also charged with being witnesses to Jesus, albeit secondhand Witnesses, we're to point, as Peter does here, away from ourselves to him. Whatever we're doing, whether we're helping people out, whether we're coming alongside them, whether we're giving them money or giving them assistance or giving them food or giving them love and compassion in Jesus' name, we point away from ourselves in our service of others by pointing always to Jesus, always to Jesus, pointing them away to him who is the center of everything. He saves. He alone saves. His power alone changes lives. He's every bit as much to, able to change people's lives today as Peter was able to change this man's life then. Now this man's paralysis was literal. His healing was a miracle. But wherever Luke, who's writing this, has recounted these miracles in, earlier on in his writing, in what we call the book of Luke, when he's recalled the miracles that Jesus performed, he has almost invariably tied the miracle to some teaching block in the story, John does this most specifically, but Luke does so as well. So when the Lord Jesus heals the, or feeds the multitudes, for example, it's in order to point them to himself as the bread of life, the bread of, from heaven. When Jesus heals a blind man, Jesus applies the healing to the principle of his ability to give spiritual sight. He says to people, you see how I made this blind man see? I can make you see, spiritually see. I can help you to see the truth. Just as really as I've done this physically for this blind man, I can do for you individually, spiritually. Open your eyes so that you see the truth as it is in Jesus. When he heals a paralytic man, the man's ability to walk and work are explicitly offered by Jesus 
as a demonstration of the reality of his power to forgive. Can I make a, a man who's paralyzed walk? Then I can forgive your sins, is his argument. So when we read of Aeneas' healing, why should it be different in the book of Acts uh, than it is elsewhere? Here, these two miracles are the run-up to the story of Cornelius, the story of people blinded, people like, people like Peter, blinded by his prejudice, paralyzed by his prejudice, not, not knowing what to do when, when he's confronted by the unclean uh, animals and whether he should eat them. He's paralyzed by his background. Sometimes that kind of paralysis keeps us from growing in our Christian lives. Interesting, the word for paralysis here is also used in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 12, Therefore lift up your dripping hands and strengthen your weak knees, paralyzed knees, and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame, what is paralyzed, may, be, may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. There the writer to the Hebrews is talking about holiness, talking about sanctification, talking about the Christian life. And he's saying that God's saints are often crippled by their prejudice, crippled by their faults or their failings or their divisions or their impurities or their rivalries like the church at Corinth. They're saints, but they're not saintly. And he's saying that holiness is a form of healing. Holiness, the transformation that comes when I see things the way God sees them is a form of healing, real healing that takes place and that actually is probably more your need tonight than physical healing. Luke stresses the immediacy of all this and the impact of all this. All the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. Peter is the instrument that the Lord Jesus, the risen Jesus, is raising the paralyzed. And secondly, the risen Lord Jesus is raising the deceased. For after moving from the area of Lydda, Peter goes down into real, deep, into real Gentile territory, down to Joppa, which is known in Arabic as Jaffa. This is a distinctly Greek city, quite foreign. It would have felt very foreign to Peter. It would probably be the most foreign and most international kind of feel of anywhere he had ever been in his entire life. And in this city is where a disciple called Tabitha in Aramaic and Dorcas in Greek lived. We weren't told much about Aeneas, but we are told quite a lot about this lady. She was a well-known lady and well-known for her good works. We're told she was full of good works and acts of charity. Later on in verse 39, we're told, uh, with a reference to some widows who were there at her funeral, they were showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made with, while she was with them. She may well have been a woman of means. She had the time and the money and the ability to make things and to meet the needs of poor people. Here was an unusual woman who had a busy faith, a generous heart. Back in chapter 6, we've seen that the early church took seriously the physical material needs of its people. That's why they set up a diaconate, the appointed seven, to look after those needs of the poor. Tabitha rightly saw that need. I think by her own initiative, or on her own initiative, she set about trying to meet the need as best she could. But doing good works for the poor 
has never been a Christian preserve. Never. In Judaism, for example, there was a long history of practical holiness, social concern, and generous charity. So the question rises, what distinctively is Christian then? What, what is it that Christianity brings that hasn't been brought either by Judaism or by high-end paganism? That is, paganism with a high moral value and moral quality. There was such, even in the ancient world. And it's that question that is partly answered by this second incident. Because the story of Tabitha, or Dorcas, is that she died. She died. And it's then that Peter comes onto the scene. Now, we, we follow the story. Here she is, busy at her work, giving relief to those who needed it, suddenly being overtaken by death. The question is, was she really dead? We're talking about people who lived in a society in which they lived with death daily. Death was, for them was not as death is often for us, removed from our everyday life into a clinical environment where we are long onlookers from a distance. In the ancient world, you lived with death. People died in your living room. They died in their bed. They died on the street. People were dying all around you. You could not avoid death. There was nothing clinical, nothing remote about death in the ancient world. That meant that people knew death when they saw it. You were dead. They would know it. And Tabitha died. And they sent two disciples to Lydda to ask Peter to come. When Lazarus, another man, had, was sick, his sisters had asked Jesus to come. And if you know the story, Jesus held back, you remember, until Lazarus was dead, and dead for four days before he came to do the mighty work of resurrection. These folk had also waited. They, they had waited, rather, till. Tabitha was dead. And at this point, at this point, the apostles had not yet raised any dead person. I don't know why they sent for Peter. Maybe they wanted comfort. Maybe, maybe they wanted more. Certainly when he arrived, he found everything was being prepared for him. The body had been washed ceremonially, a sign that she was a very significant person in the church and in the community. She was laid out in the upper room. Perhaps that was the upper room where they met for worship regularly. And there were others there. There were people who had been ministered to by her. People who could give testimony to what she had done for them. A reminder that our good works follow us after death. The lives we touch, the lives we impact, the people we help, the people we show compassion towards, the people we love, the benefits that we leave to people go on after our death. We never see, actually, we never see in the, in the interactions of life and, and in, the, in the multitude of relationships that people have, we never see the full impact of our lives upon other people. Very often it's at our funeral when we are not really exactly there to enjoy it that people turn up with their stories. I'm kind of hoping somebody will, that mine. But you never see the impact of your life. Actually, very often, the real impact will never be known 
until we get to eternity. These people were there because of the impact of her life. Following the Lord's example, Peter puts them outside. Remember Jesus had done that. He had uh, put them all outside and Jesus had taken a little girl by the hand and commanded her to get up. But this time Peter gets down and prays. As he gets down to pray, he's like Elijah the prophet in similar circumstances. Elijah and Peter both would express their utter dependence on God for the resurrection of the dead. Peter knew that, unlike Jesus, Jesus who said, I am resurrection, I am resurrection and life, Peter had no power, no power to give life of himself. So he prays, he throws himself on the mercy of his Savior. And having prayed, he turns to the body and he says, Tabitha, arise. He calls her by her Aramaic name, just as Jesus had called Jairus' daughter, Talitha. Talitha, arise. Talitha, kuma. He uses the same word. Peter uses the same word as is used of the healing of the paralyzed man earlier. A word for the resurrection. He arose. He is raised up. He is risen. Tabitha, arise. And you need to understand what's going on here. In utter dependence on the Lord Jesus, who is alive and reigns with the Father and with the Holy Spirit, Peter speaks to a corpse and tells it to get up. That's what he's doing. If you'd been around and looking, you would have laughed him to scorn. And yet the, uh, the ultimate outcome of that simple command is stressed straightforwardly in verse 40. She opened her eyes and when she saw Peter, she got a fright. No, nope, no. Nope. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. Well, of course she did. If you saw Peter after you'd been asleep, you'd probably sit up as well. She opened her eyes as if waking from sleep, although she was waking to life. It's like the story in 2 Kings 4 about the Shunammites' woman's son who had died. He opened his eyes. And she sat up like the widow of Nain's son that Luke records in Luke chapter 7. And just as Elijah and Jesus gave sons back to widowed mothers restoring their protection for their, for their benefit. Peter presents Tabitha to the saints, especially to the widows whom she had provided for. In other words, Peter, through this action, is being placed among the foremost prophets of Scripture. He's also being placed alongside his master, Jesus. What the prophets foreshadowed and what the apostle here echoes is the life-giving power of the risen victorious Lord who stands at the center of history. And we need this preparation for what will follow in the story. For what will follow in the story is of such groundbreaking, earth-shaking, world-changing significance that we have to be convinced that Peter is in a position to make the moves that he will make in chapter 10. 
And so he's being authorized as he performs these miracles. Now these events are rare enough in the Bible. But they're even rarer today. But these events underline the fact that Christianity is at its very heart a supernatural religion. When in the 19th century there were movements afoot to undermine Presbyterianism in the United States, especially in its seminaries, one of the key things that was attacked was this whole idea of supernaturalism in religion. The influence of Darwinism and so on had led to a, a, a real hostility towards any kind of supernatural element. And this has survived in the in the 1960s and 70s in, uh, in the United Kingdom, William Barclay was a, a well-known New Testament scholar and he, he regularly rubbished the supernatural. So when the 5,000 people are being fed, the real miracle is not that Jesus produced the food, but, but that he provoked them to bring out their packed lunches, which they'd been hiding up their robes. And when Jesus walked on the water, he was walking on stones, they were just hidden. They were just below the surface. He had, a, he had an explanation for everything. But what these miracles are demonstrating is that Christianity is at its very heart a supernatural religion. We, we're talking about God's stuff here. This is what makes sense of prayer. We're not talking to the, to the ceiling above us. We're not talking to the roof. We're talking to God. We're talking to the real God. We're not talking about, uh, we're not like people like David Hume or Anthony Flew who basically said miracles don't happen because they don't happen because we say so. Get that? Miracles don't happen because they don't happen because we say they don't happen. These miracles performed then happened in order that this church, this incipient Christian movement would survive. It was the only thing distinguished it from anything else. The supernatural element, the raising of the dead. That was the only thing that could convince Jews that this was real. And it raises the question, doesn't it, of miracles today? Why are they so scarce? One thing we need to say about miracle, however, is this. A miracle does not require any more power from God than is required for what we call normality. To sustain the universe as we see it, morning by morning, that you have life and breath and something to eat and a place to stay and a planet to live on and a solar system to go rolling around in depends on the express will and power of God. For him to deviate from the, what we call normal for a nanosecond and do it differently requires no more power from God than the power of God that is around us all the time. That's absolutely basic to understanding miracle. Miracle is merely a deviation from the norm. That's all. It isn't an expenditure of more power on God's part. And miracles are called miracles in the Bible because they're not everyday events. 
The Bible doesn't have miracles all through. You'll notice if you read the Bible that the miracles come in pockets around key figures like Moses and Elijah and Elisha, Jesus and the apostles. They're concentrated on these key moments in redemption history. They're called miracles because they don't happen every day. And we must neither discount them nor crave them. And if today a miracle happens, then praise God for it. And if they're not happening, which they're not happening most of the time, either in the Bible or today, then we should pray for grace to persevere in spite of the trials. What does the raising of the paralytic, the deceased person, teach us? In the flow of the book of Acts, it's posited on a twofold truth. That Jesus is both the risen and exalted Lord. That based on that fact, a new creation has begun in Jesus Christ that points forward to a climax towards which our history is headed. These miracles are signs of the new heavens and the new earth where there will be perfect, permanent healing and resurrection and life. The one in whose name the paralyzed and deceased were raised will at his coming and kingdom raise the dead and give eternal life to all his elect people. In the flow of Acts, these miracles stand in preparation for the next part, which is the great step of mission to the Gentiles. Now, this one who does this new creative activity is going to do something even more remarkable in that he is going to bring people from all around the globe into his kingdom. And many shall come from east and west and north and south and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of God. The, miracle, the miracles are preparing us for the greatest miracle of all that you and I will ever encounter in our lifetime. That is the miracle of a world turned upside down. More and more people being brought from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to the power of God by the mighty strength of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we'd be convinced that we live in a world of the supernatural, that there are around us angels and archangels in glorious array interacting with us and interacting with our world at all points and accomplishing your purposes in the world, preserving and protecting your people from evil. We thank you that every day we see your supernatural power at work, sustaining the universe by mighty powers. What we call the laws of nature are just your normal ways of working. What we call miracles are the days when you have an off day and do it differently. We praise you for your power that sustains everything. We cast ourselves on your mercy. We praise you above all for the power that brought people here in this room from their unbelief to belief, from death to life. We pray that you would continue to work such mighty acts among us, your people, we pray. In Jesus' strong name.